Today I'm discussing Shelley Katz's 1977 novel Alligator. No relation to Louis Teague's 1980 film of the same name, but it is by far the more plausible story, and it ably evokes the environmental and ecological aspects of its late 1970s Southwest Florida setting with some melodramatic flourishes. Uh, you'd be better off ignoring the overcooked back cover summary. I mean, that is if you can find a copy of the book at all. More on that later. In fact, for the most part, this story would slot in pretty nicely alongside any of the tales featured in Akashic Books' recently published anthology Tampa Bay Noir. It really has that sort of noirish or hard-boiled feel to it plot and character development lines. Despite all the lurid details of the summary and the monster movie evoking cover art, what really emerges here is a story of landscape and people and their hubris. I recently paid $51 for a copy of this book. Yeah, yeah. Original cover price of the Dell paperback, a buck ninety-five. Yes, you heard that correctly. I paid $51 because a $44 edition of the book was sold before I had the chance to purchase it. I've spent some time contemplating who else out there would be that you know, desperate to get their hands on what might seem like a forgotten oddity, but this signals to me that there may indeed be some renewed interest in this tale and its ilk. I mean, after all, the 1970s were awash in this type of eco-horror in both film and literature. I mean, just movies alone, I can think of Empire of the Ants, Frogs, Piranha, Grizzly, and so on. And of course, let's not forget Jaws either, I suppose, or, you know, more forgettable films like Day of the Animals. Um, not coincidentally, to my mind, this era also saw the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency and a renewed sense of environmental consciousness in the United States. As noted in the pages of Alligator, the titular animal was, at the time of the book's publication, a federally protected species as it sought to recover from decades of poaching and habitat loss, and today, any Floridian can tell you that the American alligator is a resounding success story by which to measure the value of the Endangered Species Act. They are that prevalent across the state, present in all 67 Florida counties. So let's read some of the back cover summary again, shall we? To the people of the Everglades, hell was green and the devil was 20 vicious feet of flesh-eating power. You know, many men had hunted the beast, all were dead, ripped by jaws lined with 80 razor teeth. Anyway, you get the point. But Lee Ferris and Rye Whitman were two men who had to try. Both were death-hardened adventurers bound by a mutual hatred and a mutual need to conquer the most savage killer in Florida's green hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty compelling stuff, huh? As I, you know, reflected earlier, I wonder if Marjorie Stoneman Douglas ever referred to the Everglades as Florida's green hell. <laughs> you know, but to be honest, I think this book and River of Grass might make interesting companion pieces. And there are evocations in this work of William Bartram, Marjorie Canan Rawlings, Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, Patrick Smith's novel, A Land Remembered, just in its renderings of flora, fauna, and human speech, to, to be honest. I mean, was the author deliberately drawing inspiration from some of these more canonical Florida works? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I could describe pretty convincingly Alligator as A Land Remembered told by Elmore Leonard or John D. MacDonald. The monstrous alligator is really a very bit player in this narrative, which mostly concerns humans and their selfish desires and insecurities. Nature provides a primitive canvas against which these desires are pursued away from the more genteel urban settings some of the characters are accustomed to thriving in, and I can't help 
but consider Alligator a somewhat unfortunate title for this book, really. It frames the story immediately as a creature feature, reduced to, like, the potential thrills of bloody animal attacks and so on. But I think if it had been titled Everglade City, for instance, I think that it may have helped its longevity and visibility. I know that seems like a really minor point, but, I, but, but stick with me here. Because the story is really a study of this small town and its precarious existence so close to this primeval wilderness. And, you know, its place apart from, from the rise of, of, of modern urban landscapes that are, you know, especially in South Florida at the time of this novel's publication, were encroaching further and further inland from the coasts. So as to the plot, I know it's only kind of hinted at and on the back cover, but the story revolves around the hunt to kill the massive gator after it attacks and kills two local poachers, and their mangled remains are found, sparking something of a panic in the community. Now, in a pretty nifty twist on Jaws, if you're familiar with, with the, the plot of the novel or the film, the local powers that be want to cover it up, not because they're afraid of alienating tourists, but because they fear it will lead to a tourist boom. They don't want out-of-towners and assorted gawkers coming to town to hunt the alligator, which seems kind of odd given how Everglade City is described in the novel. I mean, you'd think they would be hunting every last out-of-town dollar they could get their hands on. <laughs> More on that later. But Rye Whitman, the kind of sort of protagonist, is a local boy who grew up poor but is now a really wealthy Miami businessman. He feels some weird atavistic need to come back to his hometown as a big success story and to hunt and kill the gator. To this end, he enlists local hunting guide, Vietnam vet, and loner Lee Ferris. Their mutual contempt and grudging respect for each other drives most of the important character development here. You know, but in many ways, that's the most forgettable part of the story. Now, see, what I want to draw attention to in this teaser for the novel, and I'm not giving out spoilers, I want people to read this book and form their own opinions and discuss them with me sometime in the future. There's more to come on that. But what I really want to draw attention to in this little teaser, so to speak, are Katz's evocations of the landscape, the physical and sensuous geography of the Everglades. The setting details here are amazing. And Katz isn't a Floridian. According to her blog, she worked as an advertising copywriter on Madison Avenue before deciding to write for a living you know, full-time write fiction for a living. She also notes therein of her published novels, and this is a quote from her blog, the major theme in all of these stories was at least one dead body, preferably several. Ha! <laughs> you know, how's that? Anyway, she's lived in the UK for quite some time. I'd really love to ask her about her creative process when imagining the setting, because it's a hell of a better description than you'll find in Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, for instance. Despite the horror-tinged overtones of, of Katz's story, you never get the, san the, the sense that Katz fears the Florida swamps, as Susan Orlean clearly and obviously does if you read The Orchid Thief. But anyway, the really compelling aspect of Katz's natural imagery here is how, with few exceptions, everything human seems corrupt, decadent, rotting, and artificial, contrasted with the lush, vibrant descriptions of nature and its energy. There's references to the negative effects housing developments and industry have had on the wildlife. Buildings along Route 41 through southern and southwestern Florida are described as, quote, two-bit diners, motels, and gas stations that line the road like a cheap necklace. Everglades City itself, it's described like a monument to disappointment and ruin, a motley row of decaying clapboard buildings disintegrating into the earth, many of them boarded up and sporting rot-splintered porches. The city docks? Oh, just rusty gas pumps and five rotting piers. The local guide, Lee Ferris, 
marvels at how the giant gator can stay hidden in the swamp when the towns kept coming closer. If the gator's a killer, he states, it's because we made him one. And there's more. The town's dry goods store, quote, located in a mud-rotted two-story clapboard building, is decorated with various anti-hippie posters featuring slogans such as Keep America Clean, <laughs> or uh, Bleeding Heart or Want to Bleed a Heart, and I'll just say those are so more 2020 than they are 1977. <laughs> rotting homes, trailer parks, everything rotting from dampness as the flotilla of boats hunting the gator leaves the docks, the assertion that the Everglades seemed like a cemetery for the South, a junkyard for Miami, and all the other forward-looking modern cities of the Southland. I mean, once they enter the more primeval wilderness, it all stops. Everglades City just stops at the edge of the deeper swamps. No outskirts. Just the end of so-called civilization after the last structure. Rye, the big city hunter, feels like he's stepped back into another age once the pavement ends. The landscape is alive, scuttling, with waist-high grass and an intense rotting smell that, unlike the rot of the town's man-made structures, is construed in this really positive, vibrant, fecund manner. And it's actually really striking, you know, when you read it in the book. Even the smell of swamp rot, of millions and millions of dead plants and animals fermenting in the heat, is seen as imparting a positive energy to Rye when he returns to his rural hometown. Everything smelled green, he thinks, the tastes and smells are so intense to him. Rye is inspired by the idea that there are areas of the swamp where no man had ever been, places only the animals knew. It ain't Disney, as one character grimly notes. But to Rye, it's invigorating. The, quote, rich, acrid smell of swamp rot. And it's, as a side note, it's amazing how many times rot is romanticized in this book. The way every inch of the land was alive with wildlife. Crabs, pelicans, herons, turtles, bugs and 1,000 flowers that scented the air. How the swamp in mid-morning adorned with orchids is so calm and beautiful. I mean, there are somber reminders from other hunters that nature is on the gator's side, not theirs. But even after following an old canal overgrown with palmettos and sawgrass to a really primeval, heart-of-darkness-type wilderness of ancient huge cypresses, the brutal power, the primitive carelessness that fills Rye with awe and terror, its experience is exhilarating as bracing in a good way. You know, Lee warns that many men have tried to settle this land for 300 years and failed miserably, and that's not heeded at all by Rye. The overall effect is to impart, at least to this reader, a healthy dose of respect for an ecosystem that is beautiful, fertile, teeming with exotic life, but can also crush you in an instant with its indifference. Rye's problem, as Lee sees it, is that he fails to grasp this. The land doesn't fight you, he says. It just doesn't give a shit. You can't win against it because it doesn't care whether you live or die. Heady stuff. And Katz, to be sure, goes a bit over the top with some of the nature imagery. During this hunt, which seems to take place in late May and early June, half the participants are swept away by a tropical storm which comes on out of the blue, just so quick. Most of the hunters try to ride it out by tying themselves to trees within the depersonalizing intensity of the wind and rain. Given that hurricane season begins on June 1st, this is either a ridiculously early, intense storm, or the hunt itself is just star-crossed, I guess. There's also a later scene with an enormous wildfire sweeping across the sawgrass plain, burning everything in its path, too, which seems really odd given the drenching the land just took from the tropical storm. Uh, there's other excesses. 
Ryze B is, is at one point being stalked by a coral snake, which, while venomous, is one of the most timid animals on the planet. You would practically have to pick up a coral snake in your own hands to get it to bite you. He's also stung by a manchineel tree, you know, uh, the beach apple, that really poisonous, you know, thing where all, you may have heard of it, uh, you know, even the sap will give you all of these, these, these ulcers on your hands and, and if it gets on them. So he gets all these leprous lesions, but survives. And this is to say nothing, of course, of the, co you know, just the really comically large alligator they're pursuing, or the allusions to the Everglades as, quote, a vast and ancient ocean, a land that existed 50 million years ago. Eh, wrong. Okay. Florida, as it is today, as, as a lot of people know, geographically, it has only existed for barely over 15,000 years, emerging at the end of the last glacial period in the nor northern hemisphere. So, no big deal. I mean, you know, with the tropical storm, the wildfire, all the snakes, poisonous plants, the gator, it's almost like, you know, a greatest hits of all the menaces that Florida might have to offer to people who dare to venture outside the city limits. <laughs> and which, again, I think may be her point. And, and I find, I actually find it, you know, uh, perhaps not so oddly uh, stimulating and, and, and interesting. And, and it was the aspect of the book that kind of surprised me the most. And the ruminations on the wilderness of the destruction and conflict between civilization and nature, between urbanization and habitat, are remarkably well-developed for a novel packaged and marketed in the way that I've, I've talked about, you know, with this ludicrous summary on the back. Rye tells Lee, scanning the swampland, that just about all of Florida looked like this when he was a boy. Muddy water, watery mud, mosquitoes so thick they hunted in packs. To him, though, Miami is a success story, a modern and sophisticated metropolis built on mud and sand, which, as he emphasizes, isn't as easy or cheap as building on the rocks underneath New York City. And he still, by novel's end, hadn't become used to the extreme indifference of a land that treated him as it treated everything else, uncaringly. But one of the scenes toward the novel's end seems to finally indicate a revelation within Rye's perception of the land, though. On their last night on the hunt, there's smells of death and rot, but there's also fragrant water lilies, grass, and cypresses as the sun sets, and this contrast fits well within the depictions of the Everglades. You know, as this place of constant fertility, but constant death, the cycles of renewal matching the land's pristine beauty, but affirming its danger, its deadliness. And Shelley Katz really nails it here with this line. Rye wanted to believe that something, no matter how primitive, was in control, rather than face the ultimate brutality of indifference. But by late in the story, he realizes that's what he's facing, and he accepts it. I'm not really spoiling too much by any of this. I mean, Alligator, to me, it has sneaky depth. I'm barely even hinting at the interpersonal human conflicts, the small impoverished town political and social dynamics, or the monstrous badass Gator, and all the gory death scenes visited on human and animal alike that appear throughout the book. So there's plenty of that if you're looking for something to whet your literary bloodlust. I was honestly, to reiterate, pretty surprised by these dimensions of the plot, and pleasantly so. But I'd like to finish up here with a couple things. One of them is a little story about how I first encountered Alligator. It was a used bookstore with my great aunt and uncle, Cleveland Heights, corner of Bluestone and Noble Road, near a pick and pay, circa 1987 or 1988. I paid something like a buck for it. I mean, really. And this bookstore, I don't even remember the name of it, is undoubtedly long gone. I read the first gripping chapter of Alligator and then for some reason never finished it. That properly priced copy, <laughs> $1, is also long gone, lost amid many moves since its purchase, among which, like all of us, I've lost plenty of books, CDs, 
tapes, you know, DVDs, all sorts of things that you lose, misplace, or give away when you move. Now, I don't think the story was worth shelling out $51 for, that's for sure. But it was worth much more than a lousy book. That's also for sure. And, and look, I don't think Bookshop can hook you up with this one, but Amazon might be the best option. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know, if you feel encouraged to, to read this story after everything I've told you. Now, unfortunately, the author herself, Shelley Katz, did not respond to my offer to appear on this episode. She's still an active writer, and I would have loved to pick her brain about why she chose this particular setting with this particular plot and about her eye for the lush habitats described in the book, since, you know, as I said, she's lived in Britain for some time and was never a Florida resident. But if you're listening, Miss Katz, the offer still stands. And I'd like to take this time to make a similar offer to anyone else listening out there. If you can avail yourself of a copy of Alligator, and want to talk about it in a future episode. Hell, do it and let me know. I'm sure the details I just shared have all of you itching to get your hands on this timeless story, even if it sets you back 50 bucks, right? Hey, maybe if Dell Books gets wind of increased interest in the novel, we can gin up enough interest to get it back in print. I would be especially interested to hear from any readers who grew up in rural Monroe County or anywhere near Everglades City. And now, here to talk about the second edition of Blair and Dawn Witherington's Florida Seashells, A Beachcomber's Guide, is Julia Nank. So welcome to the club, Julia. Thank you. Okay, so what is this book about? Well, it's about fine. It's like a beachcomber's guide, and um, so they, like, you can buy this, and it helps you ident identify shells. And stuff. Okay, and you found this book at Anastasia Books in St. Augustine, Florida. Yes. Yeah, it's a cute little bookstore, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so why did you want this book? Did you think it would help you find cool places to look for shells? Yes, I really like looking for shells. So does my mom. <laughs> What's your favorite part about this book? Well, I like after I find I discover the shell, like undo the shell, like find, uh, sorry, like um, find out what the shell is. I want to look where it's usually finded. Mm -hmm. Are there any favorite shells in there that you really like? Yes, I like the glossy dove snail yeah. shell. Have you so, found that one yet? No, not yet. Yeah, it looked like that one, according to the little map, was on the east coast and down to yes. the Keys. Yeah, so we, we haven't been... We have to go to the Keys! Yes! Yes, or around to the east coast of Florida. Yes. So we'll find it. So what would be a good reason to buy this book? Does it help you know where to find certain shells? Yes, and it helps you identify. And I really like it. And, and like, I really like the picture on the back. The picture of the back is like a ton, a ton of shells. <laughs> Yes, and we know you are a girl who loves shells. Yes. Now, what are your favorite beaches to look for shells at? Um, I think the St. Augustine Beach and Passagirl. Mm. Yeah, those are both very good beaches. And here's a little bit about Blair and Dawn Witherington, who wrote the book. They are both Florida natives, and they share a fascination with the wilder parts of the state. In their quest to catalog nature's elegance and curiosities, the couple has left footprints along every stretch of Florida's incomparable coastline. 
We have learned that beaches are places where beauty abounds, wonders are spontaneous, and footprints fill quickly. Isn't that a great way to talk about the beaches here? You love going yes. to the beach. <laughs> hey, I have a jet. Knock, knock. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Aren't you glad I didn't say banana again? <laughs> and with that, thank you for joining us, and you're a member of the Florida Book Club now. Yay! Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. There are links to purchase Alligator, if you are so inclined at that price, and Florida's Seashells, a Beachcomber's Guide, on our website, as well as a link to Shelly Katz's blog. Give her a shout out and see if we can get an affordable copy of Alligator back in print. That does it for season one of Florida Book Club. Season two is coming probably by spring 2021. So stay tuned. Thanks for hanging around to listen to stories about this doomed peninsula, the last U.S. state to emerge from the sea and probably the first to return to it. Hopefully you now have a sense that yes, despite common pervasive misconceptions, there is such a thing as Florida literature. Thanks so much for being part of the audience and we look to have you back for more next season. I want to end with a huge shout out to John Mink, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist as anything more than an idea. He's done at least 75% of the work getting each episode to you. He needs to put his name on the website more prominently than mine, honestly, and a picture too. So thanks again, brother. And we'll see you all somewhere further down the beach in a few months. <laughs>